go live. Okay, we should be live, as they say, on all fronts now. Yeah. From Facebook to YouTube. Hey guys. Okay. You ready? This is going to be a, a phenomenal class, I hope. It's a matter of trust. Before I begin, I want to gratefully acknowledge today's sponsorship. Our dear show member, Betty Floss, has generously sponsored today's Torah class, today's episode, in loving memory of her husband, a very, very dear friend and an unforgettable member of our shul, David ben Shaul, David Fluss. May his memory be a blessing. May his neshama have an aliyah. And may he have nachas from the Torah that we study together today, here and around the world. So with no further ado, today we begin a new chapter. This is the longest chapter in the entirety of the Shara B'Tochen. And this is really going to tell us how to actualize our B'Tochen. And instead of speaking about the content, I want to like, dive straight into it. Perek Dalet, the fourth chapter. If you're following along in the Kihat edition, not that you're going to find much commentary there, but uh, if you want to just follow along to see the actual words, you can take a look at page 110. Pedikrivi, the beginning of the fourth chapter. The Pedik begins with an unusual word, avol. But, is usually how avol is rendered. <laughs> Most translations just say, they just ignore the word avol. They say, advarim shechayovim, but... But it doesn't say hadvarim shechayev It doesn't say the matters. It says avol. There is a but here, and the but is that despite all that we've learned about the importance of trusting in Hashem and how nothing happens by dint of our actions or our efforts. We are just creating the vehicle. But, but, despite the fact that this is true, there are almost always things we are supposed to do. And that's why it starts, I think, with an avil. I don't, I don't think we should be glossing over or omitting words in the study. I've said this many, many times, but the... Our sages over the centuries have placed so much value, so much awe and respect in this book that we do ourselves a grave disservice when we just ignore nuance or gloss over a word or phrase that doesn't seem to speak to us. We are the losers. We are the ones who will be spiritually impoverished instead of enriched by not absorbing the full intensity and the beauty 
and the profundity of every single word that the great and holy Rabbeinu Bachai wrote. So, Aval Hadvarim. But there are things. Shechayov Hamaimin Livtoyach Bohem but there are matters or things in which the ma'amin, the believer, is required to place his trust. He's obligated to rely on Hashem. A strange way to start this chapter. But there are things that the believer has to trust has to place his trust in Hashem. But there are things that the believer has to rely upon God. We just finished learning about how God does everything. We are not the masters of our own destiny in any way, shape, or form, ever. Everything's in the hands of Hashem. In the past episodes, we learned that it's not because of what we do, but sometimes it could almost be in spite of what we do that we receive sustenance or obtain our objectives. And yet we still have to toil. We're still required to do it. And he starts off and says, but there are things you have to trust in Hashem. If anything, the but should be, <laughs> there are things you still have to do. Now what does it mean, Chayev HaMaimen? The believer is obligated. You know, the, in, the, in the Art Scroll version, which is one of the contemporary translations that's uh, recently seen the light of print, they, they quote a modern commentary with the name Leiv Ha'ari saying that emuna is conviction that God provides all of one's needs, okay, and that it's a prerequisite to betochen, obviously, which is relying on Hashem. And now I quote, Accordingly, in discussing where Betachen and Hashem applies, the Chayvis Alavavais addresses himself to the Maimon, to the believer. I have no idea what that means. To me, it sounds like, like utter gibberish. What, the, the book was addressed to atheists up until now? To the best of my recollection, Rabbeinu Bechaya has not made a single cogent argument to the atheist, to the denier of divine creation and divine imminence and Hashem's involvement in our lives. It's, this whole book is addressed to the believer. If you're not a believer, there are probably other books that you may want to study first. This book is to teach people who believe in Hashem how to trust in Hashem. And as we learned, they're not one and the same. So with all due respect to whoever Leiv Ha'ari is, I don't understand what he's saying. So I would like to humbly suggest that in order to appreciate these opening words of Rabbeinu Mechaia, we need to... We need to go back to the future. <laughs> well, not really kind of to the past, but to the future after, after Rabbeinu Bechaya. Rabbeinu Bechaya lives a, a thousand years ago. So he's living in the 11th century. And that's where his work is written. And 
the, it's printed very early. It was never printed, but it was already being distributed or disseminated via manuscript copyist in the early decades of the 11th century. So that's a thousand years ago. Now, approximately 100 to 150 years later, there is a great sage, actually almost 200 years later, whose name is Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman. We believe that Rabbeinu Bachaya lived and taught Torah in Zargoso, or Sargosa, which is Spain. And Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman also taught Torah and inspired the Jewish community living in Spain. Of course, he's born much later. He's born only in 1194, and he functions or serves the Jewish people in what we would call the 13th century. One of the things that Rab, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman does is, in addition to authoring commentary on the Talmud and commentary on the Chumash, on the Bible, there are various manuscripts that he authored. One of them is purported to be a book known as Sefer Ho'emuna Vahabitochen, the book of faith and trust. And in it, he discusses the interplay between faith and trust. The Bein Abachai's primary focus in the Shara Betochen, which is a part of the Chovat Halavavot, is to address trust. But Ramban, some two centuries later, addresses both. He addresses both the concept of faith and trust. And I want to share with you some of the words that he wrote right in the beginning, because I think this will help us, as we go back to the future, appreciate what perhaps Rabbeinu Bechaya, the first, was trying to tell us. Quote, Ho'emuna v'habitochen, faith and trust, heim shnei inyonim. <laughs> They're two separate, distinct entities. Sheha'echod tzorech l'chaveroi, ve'ein chaveroi tzorech loi. One requires his companion, but the other is able to live in isolation of the latter. So one needs both, but the other does not necessarily have to have the other. Rabbeinu Moshe explains. Ho'emuna kodemat libitachon. Faith has to precede trust. Umitkayemet belev hamaimen. Faith is something that takes root or is manifest in the heart of the believer. So in the heart of the believer, the believer has a strong conviction. He feels the veracity, the truth of whatever his or her belief system is, but it's not really an emotion. It expresses itself as an emotion. It's not really an emotion. Really, it's... It's higher than an emotion because emotions are subjective. Emotions are not subjected to a litmus test of independent truth. Let me illustrate. My uncle Label Olav Shalom used to say, he said, a hergish is kemel nicht ungerecht. A person has a feeling. It's a feeling. 
a feeling's a feeling. How dare you have such a feeling? He has a feeling. That's his feeling. Sometimes Hasidim get carried away with their hergeshim, their feelings. Okay, so, so you have a feeling. But the fact that you may or may not have a feeling doesn't mean that it's an, it's an axiomatic truth or it's, it's an objective reality that's beyond the purview of your reality. Your reality is not necessarily everybody else's reality. And then there are things which are objectively true. Let me give you an example, and I'm using this by means of illustration and illustration only. The concept that a Torah teacher, a true Torah teacher, is not merely a person who provides guidance, education, information, or even inspiration. According to Torah truth, and this is found in the syntax of Rashi in his commentary on the Chumash, quoting from the literature of Torah, of Torah true literature, he says, B'chol mokoim harav av." In Torah, we don't refer to the Rebbe as a Rebbe or as a teacher. We refer to him in paternal terms, as a, as a tate in Yiddish, as a father. That's the way it's referred to. And in fact, when it says, V'shinantam levanecha, the disciple, the student, is not called a, a student. In other words, the relationship between true Torah instructor and one who receives that instruction is not merely academic. It's not just something which is relevant in an educational arena, but it's actually overarching. The relationship touches upon every area of life, like a parent. Your father and mother are not just your father and mother when a kid goes to college and he needs money. Father and mother are father and mother in everything. It's, it's an overarching kind of relationship. It pervades every iota of your conscious reality. And so it is also with a true Rebbe. So if, if a chassid says that he views the Rebbe as a tata, he views the Rebbe as a father. So, so is, that, is that right? And the answer is by yardstick of Torah truth, it's 100% accurate. And if a chassid says that he views the Rebbe in a particular way, or the Rebbe means something to him, and this is a very touchy-feely thing. If you, if you know chassidim, you know that chassidim have a very a personal bent or take on their relationship with the Rebbe. It is very much a relationship. So if a chassid sees in his Rebbe the perfection of Judaism and the, the, the supreme example of what a yid and a human should be, that is, is that per se an objective truth that everybody else has to recognize? Not necessarily. The chassid is entitled to his opinion and his own hergation, his own feelings. So that's not something which is an axiom. That's your reality. And for you, it's real. That's fine. But then there are things which transcend us as individuals, meaning our own emotions. It's true because it's true. When we talk about faith, faith in Hashem, we're not talking about an emotion. So, you believe in God, I believe in recycling. You have your faith system, I have my faith system. I believe in my own things. You know, I believe in, uh, I believe in uh, woke culture. That's what I believe in. I believe that's going to save humanity. That, that's, that's, that's right. That's what you believe in. You? So, you know, put it on an equal playing field. You believe, I believe. No, sorry, we, we, we don't, we're not going to agree with that. These beliefs come and go. These beliefs do not come from a higher place. They are manufactured by people 
for the most part, in reaction to circumstances that unfold around them. It's their way of engaging with a changing reality. And we believe that the Torah truths are objective truisms which are not created by society or conditions, but rather legislate to society and create the conditions. So why does a Yid believe? Many Yidin, many Jewish people don't even know what they believe. They just know they believe. They can't really figure it out. They're not sure. Until Maimonides came along and he wrote a specific code of what Jewish people believe. And people were not even sure what they believe. And I believe the Torah is true. I'm not even sure what that means exactly, some people said. Rambam in his Torah genius came along and he said, here, let me articulate for you exactly what Torah says we believe in. When we believe in Hashem, what it really is, is coming from the soul. It radiates from the neshama. radiates from the soul outwards. You do, <laughs> I said this in some of the previous uh, lessons. I'll, I'll repeat it again just briefly. You see with your eye, you hear with your ear, you smell with your nose, you taste with your mouth, you understand with your brain, you feel with your heart, you believe with your soul. So if somebody says, yeah, faith, well, seeing is believing. So when I'll see it, that, that's when I'm going to believe. And my response would be, that's like saying, tasting? Tasting is seeing. When I see it, then I'll know it tastes like something. As long as I don't see a difference between sugar and salt, there's no difference to me then. Well, if you want to know the difference, put your tongue into one or the other and you'll find the difference out very quickly. No, I don't trust my tongue. My tongue is irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is things I can see. I need to see it to taste it. Obviously, that's ridiculous. It's far more ridiculous to say seeing is believing or give me a scientific experiment that demonstrates the veracity of God's existence and show him to me so I can see him and then I will believe. That's silly. That's not belief. I don't have to believe that it's afternoon right now where I am in Ontario. I look out the window, I see that it's afternoon. I know that to be the case. It's not something I have to believe in. So is belief whatever we decide to believe in? No, that's mumbo-jumbo. Or maybe that's your reality, and that's, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, you can have your own hergish or feel however you want about anything. You can feel in your heart that somebody cares about you, even though they're screaming they don't care about you. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, I don't know. But when we talk about faith, we're talking about the neshama. So the neshama, so to speak, radiates outwards. But Ramban tells us, we think this is Ramban anyway, it's mitkayem, it's sustained, it's sustained in the heart of, of the believer. So maybe we could understand Ramban's words like, the flame on the candle or on the lamp is not the paraffin, the wax, or the oil. It's not the wick, it's flame. But in order to have the flame, I need something to contain the flame. Otherwise, a person can have a spark released, an electron released, and it just dissipates. The only way I can continue to maintain the flame is to feed the flame. I have to have a, a framework, a mechanism that's able to house the flame. That's a candle. That's a container with some kind of fuel 
that can burn in an orderly fashion as it feeds, so to speak, the wick or feeds the flame via the wick. And the wick is the con- convention that's able to contain or hold on to the flame. So the candle maintains the flame, but the candle is not the flame. And of course, if you blow out the candle or extinguish the flame, the candle is still there, but the flame isn't. So the emuna, which is not the heart of the emotions, but nonetheless, it's mitkayim belev hamaymen. And yet, Ramban tells us, it is possible for a person to have convictions to believe in something, but he doesn't rely or trust on it. He doesn't have trust. He doesn't change his life because of it. He, doesn't, he believes in God. He believes that God can sustain him. He believes that God can choose to give him anything he wants if he only asks for it. And practically, it doesn't necessarily influence the person in a positive fashion. The most famous example of this is illustrated by our sages in the Talmud when they said, Ganva Rachmanakarya. And I've said this so many times already. A thief, says the Gemara, making his or her heist is praying to God as they do so. So in other words, they believe that God can save them. They believe can God can give them success. Well, for heaven's sake, if you believe that God can help you perform criminal activity, then why would you just try to make a living in an honest way? It's hard. It's challenging. Just pray. The same God you're praying to, you're saying, God, come on. Like, like I'm at Rama, you know, like, like I'm at the casino. Make the wheel turn. God, make the wheel stop. One second. You believe God can make the wheel stop? Then why don't you just go into business and make an investment and pray to Hashem that you should be able to make an honest living? If you believe that God can make the wheel stop. <laughs> if you believe that God can influence the, 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 the gambling machine, why can't God influence your business affairs? And yet it's a funny thing. There's all kinds of people praying at the slot machines at the casinos, but they're not praying when they're sitting at their desk. At their desk, they're convinced that their own intuition and their own wisdom and strategy and acumen is earning them a living. But when they're at the casino, they know that acumen and strategy have absolutely nothing to do with the luck of the draw, so they're praying. Now, this is a study in and of itself, why people choose to pray there and don't choose to pray in their offices. The truth, though, is that in every situation, it's in Hashem's hands. And we have copious examples of this because people with lots of acumen and skill and, 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 and vigor and strategy fail. And people with none of the above seem to sometimes succeed. So, well, that's an anomaly. It's not so anomaly. And anyway, even if it is an anomaly, how did it happen? So we believe that a person can believe without it influencing his life. And Ramban says exactly that. You can have faith. It's real. Yeah, the person believes in this. But Ein Betachanima, he's very, very concerned. He's riddled with anxiety about his future. But he believes in God. You don't need Betachan to be a believer. You really don't. Ulufichach, Eini Meiralov. Faith in no way indicates that there is trust. Ah, Aval Habitachan. If you see a person who is cool, calm, and collected, relaxed, you say, who are you relying on? 
Did somebody promise to take care of you? Yeah. Who? God. Oh, come on. Seriously? Yeah. I believe that Hashem will take care of me. In fact, I believe it with such absolute, perfect, unshakable, faithful trust that I'm not worried in the least bit. So, wow. You have a lot of faith. Yeah. And a lot of trust, too. You can't have betochen if you have no emuna. So the maimon, the believer, can develop betochen. And betochen can't exist without emuna. And yet, emuna can exist without betochen. Ramban metaphorizes in very interesting terms. Very graphic, actually. He says simply, kol habayteach, any truster in Hashem, we talked about the idea we've defined trust multiple times already in previous episodes, he's a believer. Not every believer has betachen, has trust. And here's the graphic illustration. Faith is like a tree. Habetochen Trust in Hashem, that's like the fruit that the tree produces. Hapri la'is ala'ilam. The fact that there's a fruit proves to us there must have been a tree. Because the fruit had to grow somewhere. However, he says, Ein ha'ilam la'is ala'pri. The tree doesn't prove the existence of a fruit. After all, yesh ilanot she'einan osimperi. There are trees that don't produce any fruit. Nachmanides goes further. He says, chasidut. Chasidus means piety. A sense of spiritual patriotism. A willingness to go above and beyond the call of duty in our service to Hashem. In avodat Hashem, a dedication, a love and a, 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 a loyalty that is fueled by love. So Hasidus, he says, if you find somebody who is profoundly pious, especially as we described it, there's got to be some wisdom there. Because you can't, you can't be pious without being intelligent, without being somewhat educated, articulate in your Yiddishkeit. After all, our sages said, an uncouth, empty person cannot have reverence for Hashem. He has no respect for anybody. He's an irreverent fellow. And a person who is an ignoramus, lacking discernment and sophistication, how is he going to be pious? So if you find somebody who's truly pious, you know that they have some wisdom. However, not everybody who is wise, discerning, or intuitive is necessarily pious. As the expression goes, a person could be a chacham, vahu rasha, and he could be wicked. So we see from the words of Rabbeinu Tam, as we try to understand Rabbeinu Bachaya from the 11th century, by going back to the future into the 13th century and seeing the way Nachmanides describes the concept of betochen, that betochen is a development from emuna. In the language of Hasidus, in the way I've already shared it multiple times, 
Emuna is Babachinas Makif. Emuna remains in an atmospheric sense, somehow distant. Whereas Betochen means when the Emuna is Bepnimius. Now the faith in Hashem has actually been downloaded, has been actualized, has been applied. I don't believe in God that, and then go steal because I don't have a way to make a living. But if you believe in God, right, that's a contradiction. Well, it's a contradiction. So what? Life's full of contradictions. Surficially, if you live in things atmospherically, perhaps that they can live together. And, and you just live this contradiction. But if you take it seriously, if you download the amuna, if you apply the amuna, and I'd like to humbly suggest that amuna that's nizen, amuna that's nourished, that's developed, that's nurtured, becomes, is distilled into betochen, a way of life. So that's like taking it to the next level, if you will. And in that way, Nachmanides identifies them as being disparate, where one needs the other, but the other doesn't need the latter. Going a little bit further into the future, the second Rabbeinu Bechaya, and we've talked about him many, many times, and I've, I've quoted from uh, his writing. So in addition to writing commentary in the entire Chumash and other areas of Tanakh, Rabbeinu Bechaya authored a number of manuscripts. One of them is called Kada Kemach, the jug of flour, which is a paraphrasing of a, a story in the scripture. But at any rate, the Kada Kemach follows letters of the Aleph base. And Ois Beis, second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, opens with Betochen. And he begins his thesis. Now, Rabbeinu Bachaya, just for clarity's purposes for everybody, Rabbeinu Bachaya lives in the, in the 13th century, in the, in the latter half of the 13th century. Um, he was a boy, a teenager, when Nachmanides, when Ranban passed away. And Nachmanides passed in, in 1270, and Rabbeinu Bachaya is born in 1235. All right, so he wasn't such a boy. Anyway, he was, he was young. He, Rabbeinu Bechaya, sorry, 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 I'm confusing these. The Rashba, Rabbeinu Shlomo, Ibn Aderet, or Ben Avram Ben Aderet, he is a Talmud, he is a disciple of Ramban. Rabbeinu Bechaya, Ben Asher, Ibn Chalava, he is a disciple of Rashba. But although Rabbeinu Bechaya never studies from Ramban directly, it is said that Rabbeinu Bechaya adopted Ramban's style and he develops his teachings. His teachings are very much along the spirit and the syntax of, of Nachmanides of Ramban. Although he was like a, his spiritual father is Rashba, his spiritual Zaidi is Ramban. You know, it's perhaps you could metaphorize the way the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad movement, would view the Baal Shem Tev as his grandfather, spiritual grandfather, because he was a disciple or a spiritual child of the Magad of Mizrich, who was a disciple of the Baal Shem Tev. At any rate, so going a little bit further into the future, we now go to Rabbeinu Bechaya, and Rabbeinu Bechaya is, is born in 1255. He was actually a, a teenager at the passing of Ramban, and I don't believe you ever met him. So this Rabbeinu Bechaya, the second Rabbeinu Bechaya, models his teachings on Ramban, and he writes in his Betochen, he opens his Betochen, not by identifying the 
emuna, faith and trust as two separate things, but rather he opens with, with a, uh, uh, his thesis with a quote from the book of Psalms. He says, King David says, Hashem, this is found in Psalm 37, the third verse, trust in Hashem, tov, do good things, and then it says, live in the land and pasture faith. So we start off with betachen, we move to doing the right thing, and then we only talk about faith at the end, which is kind of odd. It almost flies in the face of, of what we learned, because <laughs> Ramban is telling us, first you need betach, faith, emunah, and then emunah becomes betachen. But in fact, King David in Psalms puts it the other way around. He talks about betachen first, and only afterwards does he talk about the idea of, of emunah, of faith. I know I've shared this with you in, in a number of the previous episodes, but I, I want to I make a point here, so I'm going to go back to some of the things we actually learned inside. And he says, David HaMelech mentions betach and tchila, and afterwards, hamas atov, afterwards doing good things. Why does he do this? So Rabbeinu B'chaya, the second, Ben Usher, Ibn Chalava says, no idea to broadcast to you. Shah betochen, what does betochen mean? that the, the trust we're talking about here is he is he's ready to trust in Hashem he knows that God will give him the strength the stamina that he needs to be able to do good things so he believes in doing good things but more so than just believing theoretically in doing good things he believes God will give him the wherewithal to do good, good things that God will give him the ability to perform mitzvahs, to live the kind of life that's filled with meaning, mission, and purpose as Hashem ordains in His Torah. God does not make impossible demands of us. He doesn't ask us to do things we can't do. And even if people think, I can't do that, that mitzvah is too hard for me, <laughs> God thinks otherwise. Because God gave you those mitzvahs. So I have to believe this. Because sometimes from the perspective of rhyme and reason, I might come to the conclusion that the mitzvahs are nice, but impractical. They can't be performed. They can't be done. I can't live this way. Unless you take a leap of faith. You say, no. If Hashem told me to do this, if God has these expectations, He must have given or will give us the strength and the wherewithal required. So you have a betachen, and that's how I say teif. He says, betochen is not the belief that God will recompense or remunerate you in the future. It's not, I'll do good things because I believe that God will remunerate you. That doesn't need betochen. That's not the reason for this. The betach Hashem here is, believe more accurately, trust Trust in God that if He makes an expectation from you, He will give you the ability to do so. It has to be that way. It's just impossible from a faith perspective to imagine things otherwise. And that's why Betachen comes first. And this is very much in keeping with the words of the Mishnah. We should not serve Hashem in order to get rewarded, to receive some kind of remuneration, but rather we should serve Hashem not 
because we're looking for a payback. We should be motivated by a higher calling. So trust that you can do this. Now, a little bit later on, about a page and a half later, Rabbeinu Bahaya returns to the seeming incongruity of opening with betachen and concluding with emunah, beginning with trust and ending with faith when faith begets trust, not the other way around. So the Beinu Bahaya here addresses this. After going through a number of other issues, he says, Uma shehischil, incidentally, just as a point of interest, Rabbeinu Bahaya references Nachmanides, Ramban, along with Rashba's other teacher, which was Rabbeinu Yonah, who lived at approximately the same time. So he talks about Rabbeinu Yonah, and then he goes back here, and here now he talks about Ramban. He says, The fact that the verse, this is prophecy, opens with trust, and it only concludes with emunah. That is, because emuna is incorporated into betochen. Whenever you'll see betochen, kol hu If somebody has trust in Hashem, you know that he believes in Hashem. In other beteach, how could you trust in, in an entity that can't live up to your expectations? Do you believe that this friend of yours is capable? No. Why, are you ready to trust that he'll do the job? <laughs> That's ridiculous. How could I trust he'll do the job if I don't even believe he's capable? Oh, so then it has to be worded the other way around. Do you believe that this person can do the job? I believe they can. Do you trust they will? Ah, that's another story. Are you relaxed? Are you calm about things? Are you a little anxious that maybe you gave them a job that they won't do? Not a job they can't do. A job they'll choose not to execute. <laughs> you can't have faith, uh, tr- pardon me, trust in Hashem. I rely on God. I, I trust God implicitly. Do you believe God's capable? No, God's not capable of anything, but I trust Him implicitly. <laughs> it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, in that ridiculous book, a heap of pile of garbage called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, he, the, the author comes with this totally misguided lunacy, this 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 heretical idea that God actually can't do anything about it. He's helpless like you. So love him like, you know, a little puppy. You can't can't trust in him because he's not capable. You certainly don't believe he's capable. But, you know, you can adopt him as a puppy. You can love him anyway. The English language doesn't have enough words for me to tell you how out Landishly garish and, 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 and repugnant and ridiculous that, that, that thesis is, and it's, being, it's proffered as Jewish theology, it's pure apikursis, heresy, mamash. So we really have to work on betachem. We have to trust in Hashem. Okay, if I'm to trust in Hashem, it's self understood that I first have to believe that He can. He can do what I'm asking. The question is, do you trust him? 
And that's not so simple. I can believe somebody's capable. I don't trust them. I believe in God. Can God deliver? Oh yeah, he can. Will he? I don't know. That means you don't trust God. Even though you believe him. As Rabbeinu B'chai goes on to say, V'hamaymin, the person who believes, Yitochen He thinks he may not trust. It may even be, he can frame that in pious terms. He may say, hey, I did a lot of bad things. I behaved very inappropriately. So I don't really deserve. I recently was counseling somebody going through a difficult time. And I said to this person, you have to have betochen. You have to have trust in Hashem. Just calm yourself down and relax. He said, listen, I know that Hashem can do anything. I don't think I deserve it. And we had a conversation about whether we can have betochen even in a time when we aren't perfectly deserving. And by the way, we talked about this, and I encourage you to go back and watch that episode. I said to him, it's actually not so. Rabbeinu Bechaya, the first, Shara Betochen, is very clear about the idea of Betochen being virtuous in and of itself. Obviously not when you're entirely rebellious. But when there's a sense of loyalty and even a sense of regret for past omissions or even sins of commission and a person places his trust in Hashem, it's certainly a powerful vehicle to actualize Hashem's brachas. So the maimon, the believer, won't necessarily trust. But the truster, he's believing. Rabbeinu Bechaya ben Asher finishes with these words. Any person in whom one can identify the measure which is called trust, you must know that that person possesses the measure called faith. And here he very much paraphrases the words of Nachmanonis. The betochen is like the fruit, the fruit of the tree. The faith in Hashem is like the trunk. And just like fruit indicates a tree, but trees do not indicate the existence of fruit because there are trees that produce fruit and trees that don't. So too, betochen is indicative of faith, of emuna. But emuna is not indicative of betochen. And he says, he talks about Chachma and Chasidus, and he uses much of the same phraseology that's used in the words of the Sefer HaEmunah Vabetochen of the Rambam. So why am I doing this? Why, why do I go back to the future? <laughs> I went back to the future because I don't think you can understand the past without the future. I know that sounds kind of funny. Usually people say you can't understand the present without the past, but... I'm telling you that I don't think we can understand Rabbeinu Bachaya ben Yosef ibn Pekuda, the past. I don't think we can understand the writing of the 11th century without looking at what the sages in the 13th, 12th and 13th century wrote because they all saw the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya. They studied his works and then they further developed. This is how Torah goes. Torah gets further articulated. It's not new truths. It's truths further developed. 
the truth is the same truth. The truth comes from the same source. Our sages tell us that anything a true, upright student of Torah seeks to innovate is actually it's already there. And it, in, in, in the language that Hasidus uses about this phenomenon, it's in the way of kalal uprat. It comes in a plurality, a generality, and then it gets, so to speak, divided into details and further developed. And this has been the case. We're very fortunate. We live in the 21st century. We're living 5,782 from creation. And the Torah was given to us 3,333 years ago. We have had endless building of layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Our sages were building one upon the other. So we're in the high tower of understanding only because we have the good fortune of leaning on all those years of scholarship and articulation. And many of the things we know today, because of what's been articulated, were known in antiquity in manners obvious. It's only as our world gets darker, as our vision dims, we need to have things spelled out for us more clearly. You know, once people, they got it. So what does Rabbeinu B'chaya mean when he says, Hadvarim shechayavin, I would like to humbly suggest to you, Rabbeinu B'chayah is talking to you about the fruit. You all need to have emunah. We all need to have conviction. We all need to have absolute perfect faith that Hashem runs the world. The question is when must that faith be articulated or embodied in a mechanism called trust? Simply stated, what do I have to do And what can I say? I leave that in God's hands. So can a person say, I trust in Hashem. You're going to take the medication? No, not take the medication. You're going to get vaccinated? No, not getting vaccinated. You're going to take precautions? No, not taking precautions. Why not? I trust in Hashem. You don't believe that Hashem could shield and protect me without human intervention? Yeah, I, I believe he could. Is that the right thing? Or are we supposed to do our part? Where does one end and the other begin? In other words, when do we put betochen into motion? This is perhaps the most important question that now faces us. Having established what betochen means, and even this idea that we need to make effort what they call in the Betochen literature, hishtadlut. Even the hishtadlut. At what point do we need to do something about it? And at what point do we say, leave it in God's hands? I think this is the key to unlocking. Avo, despite the fact that we have to make some efforts, we talked until now, especially at the end of the previous chapter, about the things we need to do. So if we need to do all those things, at what point should we stand down? At what point should we not get involved? Say, well, leave it to God. That's the question. When does the emuna metamorphose into betochen? When does the betochen get applied? This really is what 
Rabbeinu Bechaya seeks to address now. And actually, if I, if I, I must say that the, the, in, the, in the Art Scroll um, annotation, they, this, they, they, they really, they, this, this they did well. They wrote, in this chapter, we describe when and how to apply betochen in practice. That is, when and how a person with betochen is supposed to put forth his own effort, hishtadlus, and when and how he's supposed to rely on Hashem's care and orchestration. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> to say that uh, Rabbeinu Bechai is addressing the believer here, I don't know what that means. He's addressing the, you, you open this book, he's, you're, you're, you, you've got to be a believer or somebody who wants to be a believer if, if you're studying this, if you're watching these classes. If you're one of these angry agnostics or atheists, you would have shut me down a long time ago. You wouldn't still be watching. Some of you shut me down anyway because you think I talk for too much, too long. And you're entitled to your opinion, by the way. But you will never understand this. If we don't talk it through, we, we need to discuss this. this we're, not, we're not in this to finish. This is the journey itself. This is a, a, a journey of discovery. And we're not going to rush this. And I'd rather, I'd rather give 50 more classes but actually understand what I'm saying and hopefully have you understand this along with me then give 50 less classes and say, okay, I'm all done, finished. Finished what? What do you understand? And how are you able to put it into practice? I don't know. <laughs> what was the point? Just to say you finished Shara B'tachet? That's no, a little infomercial. Anyway. So, because this is the goal, it's actually going to get very interesting now. We're going to have various different categories because not everything is the same when it comes to betochen. There are some areas where betochen has to be activated very early on. You do just a few small things and that's it, you stand down. And other things where a person has to continue to make the efforts and can't just say, I rely on God. And at the same time, has to be doing it with the knowledge that it is not going to produce the results and you are relying on God. So it's extremely nuanced. And this is precisely what Rabbeinu Bechaya is going to try and do for us now. Well, it's what he's trying to help us do for ourselves, actually. He's just illuminating the pathway. This is not Rabbeinu Bechaya's personal journey. This is not his learning how to be a, a boteach. This is him teaching you how to be a boteach. You, learn, you have to learn how to live with certainty. If we go through this book, or you and or I aren't living with certainty and haven't rid our lives of anxiety, <laughs> then we have to go back and start studying this book all over again. I once read that one of the great disciples of the Baal Shem Tov, the Pinchas Karitzer, that um, it was said of him that he studied this book in depth 1,000 times. That's longer than my lectures. And I want you to know that I, I spent a lot, a lot of time trying to figure this out. And maybe I didn't, but I spent a lot of time. You know, I burned the midnight oil. I'm up early in the morning working at this. Many, many hours. I, I'm knocking my brains out trying to figure out what's going on here. Because the syntax is not easy. This is not an easy read. Anyway, this is my humble offering. And this is why we say, Avol! The things that the maimon is chayv the, the, to, to, to trust 
So now we're going to have, there's two minim, two sorts, two sorts. And here it gets even more challenging. <laughs> this is like, this blew my head open. One of them is, the matters of this world, as it, as it, as it is, you know, the, our here and now terrestrial existence. That's called Olam Hazeh. The second is the matters that pertain to the world to come. The matters of the proverbial paradise world to come future. I'm like, what did we just read? I'm actually not understanding this at all. Okay, let's, let's think about this now for a minute. So, I need to do my part to try and make a living, but I shouldn't be anxious. I shouldn't be nervous. What if when I try to sell, they're not going to listen to my sales pitch? And what if I should have Googled a little more and learned more about the background? And what if I could have, but if they, they don't like red and I, I, I framed it in red, if I should have framed it in green. And I'm endlessly worrying and worrying. And what if, what if, what if, what if? So I have so many what ifs and so much anxiety. And, I'm, and, and if, I, if I fail at this presentation, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to get the sale. I'm not going to get the sale. I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage. I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. Oh, yeah, I'm so nervous. What are you so nervous about? You can make the perfect presentation and it can fail. It's nothing to do with you. The customer had a bad night. They got in a fight with their spouse. They got bad news. And they're in a sour, foul mood. They're not receptive to anything you're going to say. You made the sale? Ah, sure I did. I framed it and I, and I, and I, and I, and I arranged it and I, I did the research. I did That's not why you succeeded. Before they walked in, they already knew they have to make this purchase. You, unbeknownst to you, the boss told them, I need this done within an hour. I need the purchase done. I don't care. Go through the motions, but I'm going to get in trouble if the purchase, you need to make the purchase. Just make it look good. As long as you don't find anything terrible, horrible, stinky, that's it. Close the deal. You made your best pitch. You did everything exactly as you thought. And you made the sale. You said, huh, I'm smart. I'm really great, fantastic salesperson. Maybe you are. That's not why you made the sale. And you'll never know. Now, what I just told you has nothing to do with emuna or betachen. These are just matter of facts. So, but how could I ever predict it? You couldn't. Now let's enter the idea of betachen. Betachen means I have to believe that Hashem not only runs the whole world, but wants me to rely on Him. So not only I have emuna, not only I have conviction that Hashem runs the whole world, I actually rely on Hashem. Which means, I know that Hashem is going to provide for me. I know that Hashem is going to give me my livelihood, my parnas. I don't know how it's going to come. I'm going through the motions. With integrity. Because that's what I'm supposed to do, as we learned about in the previous episode. And I knock my brains out, and I invest every ounce of creativity, and I make the best presentation possible, and then I leave it to Hashem, and I was never worried. Weren't worried? Are you insane? How could you not be worried? 
So much was riding on this presentation. I wasn't worried because I trusted that Hashem was taking care of it for me. How could you trust Him? He said I should. God says, Betach Hashem. Trust me? Okay. Cast your hope upon Hashem. I have no anxiety. That means, That means I have to trust Hashem when I go through whatever it might be. I trust Hashem. A person has to go, God forbid, for a surgery. He's not anxious at all. Why aren't you anxious? What if the surgeon's going to make a mistake? What if this isn't the best surgeon? I did my part. I found the best surgeon I could find. I did my research to the best of my ability. I got multiple opinions. This is what the majority thinks I should do. This is the doctor who logically has the right approach and my best interest in heart. I did my part. So now what? Now? I trust in Hashem. You worried? Why should I be worried? Hashem has my back. These are matters of this world. Health, parnasa. Whatever it is that I might be involved in any endeavor, I'm not anxious because I trust it's in Hashem's hands. Okay, that's in this world. What kind of trust is there in the... In, in, in eternity. What kind of trust is there in paradise? What? I have to trust that God's going to reward me? I believe it. I have to trust it. For me not to be anxious, for you not to be anxious, when we have a watershed moment, a pivotal hour, you know, these, we all have these occasions where there's a lot riding on what happens in the next few minutes. And invariably, human nature is such that we get really nervous and worried. And that means no betochen. Or a weakness in betochen. Strength in betochen means I trust in Hashem. He's got my back. I trust in Hashem. But when it comes to Olam Haba, I believe, I believe this scharvainish, I believe this consequences. I believe that what I do is meaningful, meaningful to God. And as such, has meaning and import. Why do I need to trust that for? Like, I read these words and I, 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 I just like, I couldn't figure this out. And I have to tell you, none of the annotations or the, the modern translations Help me in any way, shape, or form. So, of the various commentaries, and there are a whole slew, about six or seven commentaries that were written on the Shara Vatochen over the last uh, 700 years or so, 600 years, there is what you could call the most mysterious of them. The most mysterious of the commentaries is written by a man whose name was Rabbi Moshe ben Ruven, and we know that he lived, or if you will, practiced. I'm going to look this up again just because I... In a town in... I think it's in Ukraine or White, White Russia, somewhere, somewhere around there. I, I did actually Google this and I, <laughs> I got the... Uh, I got the... the Polish or Ukrainian spelling. In, in, uh, in Yiddish... 
this Moshe ben Ruven lived in Yorbarg, or Yorbarg. But I think it's something like uh, Juinburg, or uh, something like that. Anyway, it's, it's a real city, like I, like I, I can't find that anything about this man. Well, all I can surmise is that he lived somewhere in the 18th century. I don't know in the early part of the 18th century. I don't know in the late part of the 18th century. I don't know if his work was published posthumously. I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about the Nader Bar-Kadish. And I, I tried to do, to do research. I couldn't find out anything about him. Other than his commentary was only published once in 1790. And it's only been republished recently. Which is pretty astounding. I mean, almost... It almost was out of print for like 230 years or something. Something like that. Now his commentary is said to be a synergy of Kabbalah and Homily, of Soid and Drush. And he is the only one who comments. Of, of every, I search everywhere. The only one who comments is this commentary, this Rabbi Moshe ben Ruvin, who writes a commentary called Nedar Bakodesh, Adorned in Holiness. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to trust that he was the real deal. He was a holy man who understood the words and teachings of Rabbeinu Bachaya infinitely greater than a peon like me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of build on what, what he gives. Because I don't understand this at all, otherwise. And what he first says threw me for a loop. Because he wrote, Oilam Haba, the proverbial world to come, which incidentally in Judaism and Torah literature can mean paradise, which is yet to come for us or for people who are alive, or it could mean the resurrection, a reality that is yet to be. And we'll talk about that more, Bezrat Hashem, in future episodes. But he says, Oilam Haba, he says, this is the foundation. This is the primary area where betochen is needed. And I'm like, what? I don't understand what betochen is needed at all for Elam Haba. This is the primary place for betochen? Here's where I need trust. I have to trust that God is going to remunerate? I don't even think about Gan Eden. It's not even on my radar. I'm working on not being anxious about the next five minutes. I'm being cool, calm, collected, and relaxed, knowing I did my part and the rest is in Hashem's hands. And it'll be the way Hashem wants it to be. As long as I do my part and trust absolutely and implicitly in Him. That's what I can do. That's what I must do. World to come? Ani mamen. I believe it. Ani boteach? I trust it? Why would I need to trust it? So listen to what the Nedeba Kredish says. And clearly, he, he believed that this is the way to understand what Rabbeinu B'chayi just wrote. He's telling us. The foundation, the anchor, the mainstay of trust is Kichofetz Chesed Hu. That God is kind and benevolent. God is good. God is good. God doesn't torment us. He doesn't torture us. 
He doesn't challenge us unnecessarily. God is good. Hashem loves you. Shh, it's a little secret. Just, just for us, okay, guys? Hashem loves every one of us. God cares about us deeply. More than we can imagine. You know, the Baal Shem Tov once said that Hashem loves every one of us. And he metaphorized, he says, like elderly parents who waited for decades to have a child. And they finally were blessed with one child. And Hashem loves us like that one child. That's like a metaphor for the love Hashem has for us. How many people think of God that way? God loves you. If He loves you, you can trust Him. If He doesn't love me, how, could, how can I trust Him? We talked about that previously. It's a basic requisite. So Chafetz Chesedu, he wants benevolence, kindness. And he says, The spirit should thusly return, be restored unto God with faithful or trustworthy love. Lovingly trusting in Hashem. We are we are a piece of God. This is remarkable words. We're a piece of God. I mean, this is what the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya. He says, The second soul of Israel. I'm, I'm, I tried to see, did this man study under the tutelage of the Baal Shem Tev? Was he aware of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev? Maybe we don't know, but it seems very much to be infused with the teachings of, of the Baal Shem Tev, of the, of the Hasidic movement. He says, this is the, this is the mainstay of Betochen. As it says, and here he quotes from the scroll of Lamentations of Megillus Echo, Chelki Hashem Amra Nafshi. Chelki Hashem, my soul is a piece of God. We will never, no, 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 no one of us will ever be lost. We'll all come home. We'll all be brought home. So I want to focus on that first, that first verse. He, he brings a verse here. He says, this is a verse. A verse, it's prophetic tradition. The prophetic tradition is, Chelki Hashem Amr Nafshi. What does that mean? So let's take a look at the words, the Pasuk and Echa. The Pasuk and Echa, verse the third chapter of the Book of Lamentations, the 24th verse, Chelki Hashem Amra Nafshi. So the Ibn Ezra renders it, Chelki Hashem. God is my portion. My portion. Amra, my soul, said, Ibn Ezra says, Li. Sometimes you've got to speak to yourself. Sometimes you have to remind yourself, if nobody else will remind you, that you're a piece of God. It's not me and God. My core essence is a piece of God. A child is like an extension of who we are as parents, but they're still disparate. They, they have their own path, their own life to live. The parent will ever love the child. 
although a child will not ever love the parent. That's a reflection of the spiritual truth. God will always love us, even though sometimes we won't love Him. So we have to remind ourselves, Chelki, Hashem, my portion is God. I'm a portion of God. I'm going to laugh. I have to say to myself, Alkein Oichil, because of this, I have to yearn for Hashem. And by the way, the commentaries talk about the word Oichil as Oichel is like hope, which is very close to the idea of trust. To place my hope, place my trust in Hashem. Rashi says, Hashem menos chelki. God is my portion. And therefore, din So of course I'm going to yearn for Him. Of course I'm going to put my trust in Him. You care about yourself? You trust yourself? <laughs> if you trust yourself, you have to trust God. As much as you care about yourself, God cares about you more. If that can be said. So this is, this is the concept of Chelki Hashem Manafshi. What does that mean? Here it gets really interesting. Medrash Echa Rabbah talks about this very Pasuk. Is the Mepharshim of the Medrash say, Alkein Oicholoi, the Mepharshim of the Medrash say, Liv Toyachboi. They actually use the word Betachan. They say, we should trust in Hashem. So, Rabbi Avohu, one of the great sages of the Talmud, repeated a teaching in the name of the elder sage of the Jerusalem Talmud, Rabbi Yochanan. And he said, let me give you a metaphor. The metaphor, what does it mean that Chelki Hashem, God is my a portion. God is not a piece. <laughs> a piece is a physical thing. God can't be a piece of anything. And how can I be a piece of God? What does that even mean? Like, what's, what's the, how do you illustrate that? With a parable. And the parable says the Medrash is like this. Lemelech shenichnas lemdina. A king that comes into the province or kingdom to provide to the nation. So, then the king moves in, so to speak. Vahoya ima, he's accompanied by three groups of officers, ministers, aides. This is the, the people who surround the king. There's Duchasin, which is probably the origin of the English word duke, like ministers, the Mepharshim say. Then there's the is Iparchin. Iparchin sounds like the idea of a governor. And then there's Istratilutin. Istratilutin are military commanders. So there's dukes, maybe like the federal government, federal ministers. And then there's provincial governors. And then there's the military leaders, national defense. And these are the, the people that get things done. So the Medrash says, in, in this, as it paints this picture for us, So there was these great or important people of that, of that uh, particular province or country. And they're, 
They're sitting with these people who came with the king. One said, I will work with the dukes. I'll take them to be my patron. I'll, I'll work with them. They will provide me with my needs. Another one said, I'm going to work with the governors. Work with the, the provincial leaders. This is a, the, 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 you know, each one's given a, an area. They call in the states a county, what we call in Canada a region. Look at these regional leaders, provincial leaders. And one said, huh, I know, I'm going to Nasev, I'm going to take to myself or work with the Istatilutin, with these military leaders. You know, come on, these, these guys are powerful stuff. So everybody chose a different pathway. Everybody chose a different patron. So the Medrash says, There was one very, very smart fellow. Omar, he said, There was one smart fellow came there. Omar, he said, I'm going to choose the king. You know why I'm going to choose the king? I want to work with the king. The Chulu Mishalfen. Because everybody changes. The king can choose to demote or promote somebody else. You work with this uh, manager and then the manager's gone. So it's not worth developing a relationship with him. He's not the guy you want to know. He just carries out the orders. Go to the top. But Malka in Mishalaf. The king is the king. The Medr says, and so there's the pagan nations, Mehen Eivdin Lachama, they're those who worship the sun, Mehen Eivdin Lalavona, those who worship the moon, solar energy, lunar energy, Mehen Eivdin Laeitz, Ve'evan, they're those who worship minerals, stone, energy, natural energy in the world. Aval Yisroel, and an Eivdin Allah Kaddish Baruch We worship God and God alone. No godheads, no figureheads, no intermediaries. God himself. This is the meaning of that we focus singularly on God twice a day and we say, Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, Hashem Alekeinu, the Lord is our God, Hashem Echad, Hashem is one. That's what Medrash says. What does it mean? But what is the parable? The Rebbe did Tzemach Tzedek in a Maimer and Parshas Pinchas in Eur HaTorah where he speaks about the idea of Chalukat Haaretz dividing the land into pieces. He goes into this verse Chel and he goes into the Medrash and he says The Medrash has to be understood. Why do you need to be smart? Matzarach Lepikchas says, wow, there's one smart guy. He went for the gold. He chose the king. That's logic, of course. The king is the one who promotes and demotes. Why go for the intermediaries here today, gone tomorrow? Go to the boss. Ah, so the Tzemach says, the thing of this medrash is, 
You can be casual with the Duke. You don't have to stand at attention. He's not a king. He's not your royal highness. He's the honorable. So you deal with an honorable. Yes, sir. So it's, you're chilled. You're relaxed. You don't have to be in a state of utter self-effacement. You don't have to be overwhelmed, awed. Why would somebody want to be in that uncomfortable position? Why wouldn't want to choose a more comfortable place to be? And the answer can only be one, he says. Because he values and wants a relationship. He wants the privilege of being in the king's presence. So yes, it's much more onerous. It, it's much more taxing. You have to really be on your toes, so to speak. And therefore, the Tzimach Tzedek says that an Avodah, in the service of Hashem, translating this into practical life, it means that when a person receives his or her sustenance, your proverbial beneficence or blessings, not from God directly, from what's called the Sitra Akhra, from the proverbial other side. So what happens then is, it's free. This is the deeper meaning of what the Jewish people said, complaining to Moshe Rabbeinu in the desert. We remember the fish in Egypt. chinam was for free. What, is, what does the sages tell us? Free? Chinam in mitzvahs. We didn't have obligations. There was no expectations made of us. We could live a life of Riley and do as we pleased. We didn't have to walk around in fear and trepidation and awe, watching every step we made. It didn't make a difference. To receive directly from Hashem, for this you need is dachiyusa. You have to refine yourself. So it's not the easier way to live. It's the more valuable way to live. It's a different quality of life. If you're looking for material plenty, if you're looking to enjoy life, if you want to be a nihilist and think life has no meaning, you want to be an Epicurean and say YOLO, you live once, just here today, gone tomorrow, let me make the most of it, you don't need a God. You don't need religion in your life. You can be a good person. You can be nice to people. You can consider yourself to be noble upright, you don't need God. You don't have to bow your head in submission to anybody or anything. You, you have your own ideas. You worship yourself. You are your own deity. You do what you believe to be noble and just, <laughs> and you do it as it works for you. Have a good time. You only live once, man. I can't tell you that somebody who is a nihilist won't be a good person. I can't tell you that there are no atheists or agnostics who are nice. I can tell you that they're living an empty life. What is the sum total of life? What is the purpose of our existence? So we come, we have fun, and we're gone. And what was the purpose of the life we lived? And how many people can really take comfort on their deathbed in the last moments of all the fun they had? Or when the machinery starts breaking down, you just live in the past. I used to have fun. 
people who experience nachas, who experience the delight. I speak about Yiddish or nachas. Most of you are Jewish, you're watching this, you know what I mean when I say Yiddish or nachas. When you see, you have the privilege of having children who walk in the ways of Hashem, who are following a spiritual trajectory, a golden chain that lasts for thousands of years, who are beautiful examples of everything you believe in and you dedicate yourself to, that's nachas. You can't buy that. As it says in Hayyim Yoyim, Yiddish Reichtum, from a Torah perspective, a Yiddishkeit perspective, wealth is not gold, real estate, stocks and bonds, a fancy car. These things are meaningless. Real value of life. Oh, but it's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. It's challenging to be a good yid. There's a lot of things you got to do. A lot of things you have to spend on that you don't have to spend otherwise. It costs so much more money to educate your children or you won't have children who follow in your ways. It costs so much more money to eat kosher food. You miss all the good sales on Saturday and you're not even working, losing all these deals. And your neighbor's laughing all the way to the bank. Their food bill is half. They don't have to spend on Jewish education. They're going on vacations twice a year. Beautiful white sands, martinis, a beautiful life. Life is great. They have more square footage than you have. They have more, more, a bigger pool. They're having a great time. They say, what do you, what do you need Yiddishkeit for? We don't have Yiddishkeit. We don't need this. What does the smart person, what does the wise person say? What does Yisrael say? He said, yes, it's possible to live a nice life materially. But this is here today, gone tomorrow. I want Kedusha. And the Kedusha comes with a sense of subservience and a sense of awe and a sense of reverence and yes, sacrifice. But it's reward. And I mean rewarding life. It's not comparable to anything else. There's a mimer from the Rebbe Maharash, the youngest son and successor of the Tzemach Tzedek. The mimer was delivered by the Rebbe Maharash in the year 1870. In the summer of 1870, it's actually a, it's a fascinating mimer. I'll try to share with you just some short excerpts of how he develops this idea. He asks the question, he brings the posik and Eicha, the Medrash. He asks similar questions. He says, if you want to understand the difference, then we have to focus on a mystical concept, which is called Or Mimala, or makif and or pnimi. Sorry, or makif and or pnimi. There's the atmospheric energy, and then there's what we call a very, very personal level of energy. A simple metaphor for this is, first of all, in the language of the Zohar, this is called soviv kalam, what surrounds or bathes all of existence and ambient reality, versus that which fills all worlds. So life, life, physically, physical life. Which part of your body is more 
or less alive? That's a silly question. All of your body is equally alive. From the tip of your nose to the tip of your toes. You're, you're equally alive. But if you talk about more valuable parts of the body or the areas of the body that have to be protected or the areas of the body that we want to make sure are working well, you're more worried about the tissue of the eye and the brain than you are about your buttocks. I mean, and certainly more about than you heal. You need a heal. You can't walk without a heal. You can't sit without a behind. But at the end of the day, your head is your information center. And there we have specific organs. So we are taught that the neshama occupies the body, broadly speaking, in an equal fashion, bringing life to all of it. And for example, when a person wants something very badly, you don't want with your finger or your ear. You want. All of you wants. When a person experiences pleasure, all of you, you experience that pleasure. It's not the pleasure of my stomach when I eat or the pleasure of my ear when I'm listening to music. I am elevated. And yet, there's an element of the neshama called the koyachari'i, the ability to see. And it needs to have a functioning mechanism called an eye in order for the spiritual force to be able to see. And there's a functioning element in the neshama called koyachashmiya, the power or ability, the wherewithal to hear. And audibility requires both the neshama element as well as a physical human ear and all of the machinery that goes along with that. And a brain to think. And a euphemistic heart to feel and so on and so forth. So the Rebbe Marash says, okay, let's give you a mushal. I'm skipping around here, but I just want to give you some of the, show you from the actual t- source and the text. It says, the light of the sun. Solar energy. The sun beats down on a beautiful beach. It beats, it beats down on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a meadow, on a field, on a mountaintop, and on a garbage dump, and a cesspool in the same way. Is the sun offended by the cesspool? Is there less sunlight in the cesspool than there is in the midst of a beautiful garden? No. Because the sunlight doesn't relate to that specific thing. The sunlight is ambient. It's there. The solar energy is there. It's not, if you will, trapped or caught up in the specifics of the geography that illuminates. That's called makif bilvad. So, for example, says the Rebbe, Rebbe Marash, a person could do a sin, an act of rebelliousness against God. And God's giving him life. But this guy is rebelling against you, God. He's a, he's, a, he's a thief. He's, a, he's brutalizing somebody. He's killing somebody. God's giving him life. It's, he is an embodiment of the opposite of what God wants. And yet God's giving him life. How does that work? It's like the sunlight. The sun is giving the light. Everywhere. To everyone equally. Achi says, then we have an energy, a light, which is able to invest itself in a personal way. And he gives us a phenomenal muscle here. Amazing, amazing metaphor 
from a concept called reincarnation. And I refer you to something I talked about a couple of episodes ago about how we view reincarnation and don't view this through a, um, an Eastern periscope, if you will. You have to see this through Torah lenses. And if you don't know what uh, Gilgal is, don't assume it's what you think reincarnation is. But there is this reality of souls that are being, so to speak, trapped in a particular set of circumstances. So the Rebbe says, it's Mavur B'tikuni Tshuva. It explains in various things that talk about the rectification of the soul for its misdeeds. Shayadechet Va'oven, that through rebelliousness and disloyalty to Hashem, Nizgalgal Nefesh Adam Bebehima, a human soul can be reincarnated into the body of an animal. And then there could be a soul that is trapped in a stone. And that's the deeper meaning of Evan Mikir Tizak, that there could be a stone that will shout out. That's a soul that's been trapped in the stone and inaudible for all these years. As it says in the Sefer Eimek HaMelech, which is a Sefer, very early Sefer of Kabbalah in Tikkun Tshuva, that it discusses the details of what kind of reincarnation happens for what kind of sin. Says the Rebbe Marash, we see that even though it's a human soul, and the human soul has seichel, human intelligence, has dibur, the power of articulation and communication. But when it's nizgalgul when it becomes embodied in an animal reality, don't look at Hollywood's examples of this with that ridiculous movie called Soul, which is full of fallacies and stupidity. The reality is that if a human soul is punished by being trapped in the body of an animal, the animal is not any smarter, so to speak. It can't do anything about it. It may have an awareness. The soul is aware. The animal isn't a smarter animal. It doesn't happen, she is the behemoth seichel, that all of a sudden the behemoth becomes very intelligent. He starts thinking of all kinds of things, comes up with solutions that the other animals are clueless about. Or that he dibur. Bilam's talking donkey, that happened once. Doesn't get to talk. Because there's a human soul doesn't mean he gets to function as a human. It's a cow like any cow. A cat like any cat, a dog like any dog, a zebra like any zebra. Even though a person's soul has been trapped in it, but it's trapped, not embodied. And a soul embodied is able to express itself. A soul trapped is shackled. So the soul knows what it is, but it has no freedom to express itself in any way, shape, or form. And that's an incredibly painful reality. And that's sometimes what happens as a result of terrible acts of rebelliousness. Because gufa behema eni kli, it's not a vessel for the nefesh adam. Only gufa adam, only the body of a human being is an appropriate receptor for a human soul. Only the body of a human can be in the, the, the frame, the mechanism in which a human being can be, so to speak, 
developed, expressed, embodied. And so, the Rebbe Marash goes on to say that if we seek to serve Hashem, what we're asking for is an erpnimi, a personal relationship with God. You don't need to have a relationship with God to have wealth and health. You don't. But you can have that within the framework of a relationship with God. This is the question. Do you trust in God and desire a relationship with Him or not? Do you want to exist or do you want to have a relationship with God? That choice is ours. There's a mimer from the Rebbe, Rashab, which is found in, um, in Sefer HaMaimorim, in the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, of the turn of the century, 1899. And he talks about the same mushal and the same, many of the same ideas. But he, he emphasizes, he says, this is what you must know, this is the point. He says, this medrash is an illustration of a hefresh ben kedusha le sitra achra. This is the difference between kedusha and sitra achra. He says that in kedusha, the meir hachayes bepnimius. In kedusha, the energy of divinity relates to that which it powers and animates in a personal way. You have the privilege of a personal relationship with God if you choose. And therefore, because of this, you have to be in a state of subservience to Hashem. Imagine if your hand told your brain, I don't want to move now. Are you kidding? You move. person wants to walk and he can't walk. He says, I don't want to walk. That means that the body is not subservient to the brain anymore. We call that paralysis. There's a breakdown between brain and body. You can choose to be the paralyzed leg. You can choose to be the paralyzed limb that refuses to accept the instructions of the brain. I'll do what I want. It's still alive. It's not a dead foot, God forbid. The blood is still coursing through it. But because it's not subservient, so to speak, because it feels itself independent or the nerves have broken down, it doesn't do what the brain wants it to do. You can't walk or move your hands about, God forbid. A person can choose to receive life from God. But the life you receive from God is the kind of life that ultimately does not, I repeat, does not mean that you have a personal relationship with God. That's a matter of trust. I think this is, I think this is how the Neda B'Kedosh understands the words of Rabbeinu B'chai. I have no other way to explain this. I want to finish off with an incredible teaching from the Rebbe. This is a subject that was discussed by the Rebbe on a number of occasions, but probably most exquisitely developed in a mimer that the Rebbe delivered in the year 1971, on the occasion of his 69th birthday. And uh, the Rebbe develops this medrash. Really, I feel terrible that we're out of time because there's so much I want to share with you here. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to share much of what I planned, but I, I want to share with you a point that the Rebbe makes. And the point that the Rebbe makes is this. We cannot make the mistake of saying that 
the other sources of beneficence, the Sitra Akhra, if you will, cannot provide for you. Can't, can't say that. Or in the language of some of the commentaries, that it's a Gagarzen Biyad it's the hammer in the hand of the, of, the, of the carpenter, the hatchet in the hand of the woodchopper, the, the, the brush in the hand of the painter. He says, no, no, it seems like there, you actually could receive if you choose to follow that approach, you, you might actually be richer. <laughs> In other words, you're not going to be richest, most successful, most famous. You're not going to have the most fun, materially speaking, if you choose a path of trust in Yiddishkeit. There is no such promise ever made. So, the non-Jewish approach, in the example of the Medrash, the non-Torah approach is, <laughs> I'll go to the Duke. The Duke will give me. I'll go to the, the military commander. As long as I give him what he wants, he'll give me. You're right. And you'll receive. You'll live a life of Riley. If you're looking for material benefit, you will receive it perhaps far in far greater measure. But will you have a true and lasting satisfaction? Will you have the privilege of a relationship with the king, with Hashem himself? The answer is no. That's a choice we have to make. The Rebbe says, from the fact that the wise said, Anon Nasiv Malka, He says, because having a relationship with the king is more valuable than the utilitarian relationship I can have elsewhere. Let me put it to you in simple words. Would you marry a rich girl you didn't love because her parents promised you a lot of money and you'll have a, you'll have a nice life? but you're living a life with a person that you don't really love? Or would you rather live the life with a person you love, even though she's a shul, poor as a shul mouse? What would the Western world say? We both know the answer. So what do you mean? Love. Marry for love. It's more to life than money. It's more to life than vacations and fun. That's what we're talking about here. Our relationship with Hashem is like a marriage. How do you want your marriage or life to work? You want to get a lot of stuff? You want to have fun? You don't have to have trust in Hashem. You can get it. Not because these people are foolish. They think that the dukes and they think that the military leaders and the governors, that they can really provide and the premiers could provide. But really, they can't provide anything. They could provide. So why are they choosing them? Because they're not living a life of love. They're living a life of utilitarian satisfaction. A life of function. Not a life of substance and purpose. Where's the money? Where am I going to have fun? What's the Torah, the Torah approach? What's the Yisrael approach? To serve the king. Why are they worshipping this? What do they people worship things for? They worship things because they want to get stuff out of it. They want to get stuff, so you get stuff. You have to be in a state, you, you can get more stuff. Ah, but if you want to be there out of love, if you want to have a relationship, relationships are effort. You have to put effort into it. You have to be in a sense of subservience. But they, they don't want to subs- 
be mavatled themselves. They don't want to do it, you know, bend themselves out of shape. They want to just enjoy life. Where's my bread getting buttered? Where am I having the most fun? It's all bechdele kabbal It's all to get beneficence. No need for bittel. Ah, but if a person wants to be wise, Hashpa Atzma the Rebbe says in the Maimer, you're going to get more stuff on the other side. That's the nature of the Yenika, of how Sitra Achra puts its tentacles into the source of blessing and sucks out va- the, uh, uh, value in life. But the wisdom of Yisrael is their altruism. We're not looking for stuff. We're not looking for the most money. We're not looking for the most fun. We're not looking for the biggest house, the fastest car, and the nicest vacation package. What are we looking for? A relationship with Hashem. My friends, that's something you have to trust in. You have to trust that Hashem actually loves you and you could have a relationship with Him. Our relationship with God is not about just getting stuff. Our relationship with God is about actually nurturing and developing a relationship. That's not logical. I have to believe that God cares about me and wants a relationship with me. I have to trust it. I have to trust that God actually wants this. In many ways, it's counterintuitive. Because all the other things, they don't last. They're not lasting satisfaction. It's kulu mischalfen, malkale mischalaf. The king doesn't change. This is what's called real value. This is what's called the true essence. As they say, love endures. A relationship. If a man or woman get married because they're physically attracted to each other, what happens if that physical attraction wanes? And invariably it does. What happens if the external realities shift and change. Are you still attracted? Are you still interested? What do you mean? It's the person I love. Ah, that's the question, my friends. And I would like to humbly suggest that this is perhaps what the Nedeba Kredish means when he says this is Ikra Bitochen. So there's the betochen, the trust a person has to have in this world, but the ikra betochen, the real matter of trust, the heart of the matter, if you will. You have to trust that Hashem actually loves you and that you can have a relationship with Him. And that's not about the physical material reality. That's divrei ha'olam haba. That's what the proverbial world to come, that's what eternity is made of. Because eternity is built and founded on that very idea and ideal. There's so much more to say, but we're out of time for today. I'm sorry it took me so long to make this point. I really hope that you understood and you have your perspective somewhat elevated now insofar as the matter of trust are concerned. Rabbeinu Bachaya will continue and speak about divrei ha'ilam hazeh, speak about this world, and I'll speak about things that lead to the next world, if you will, but that's Bezrat Hashem for another day. I'll see you back on Wednesday for Bridge to Eternity. And again, I want to thank all of you for joining. Those of you who stayed with me throughout the entire presentation, thank you. 
If you found it inspirational, educational, uplifting, meaningful, please be so kind as to share that. I'd appreciate it if you could hit like, if you could share, and if you could share the series with others. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you again for joining. Have an amazing day. I look back uh, forward to seeing you back, Bezrat Hashem, in, on Wednesday.